Hi everyone, my name is Aaron. I'm the lead pastor here at Union Church in San Clemente. I want to thank you for tuning in this weekend. If you have your Bible, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we work through books of the Bible at Union Church, typically go, just go straight through books of the Bible. And so uh, we're doing that right now in a series in 1 Peter. So you can turn there, again, 1 Peter chapter 2. As always, if you have kids at home, I want to point you to the resources on our website that our kids ministry leaders have put together. We have an interactive video lesson, stuff for you to print out, work through together as a family. So make sure to access those resources at unionchurchsc.com this weekend and worship together as a family. I also want to say this, we're not gathering, obviously, as a church. We're gathering as well digitally during the week over Zoom for small groups and uh, those sorts of things, all, all the other ministries. But we're also still doing one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And I just want to remind you of that. If you have not been through our discipleship manual, the Fundamentals of the Faith, now's a good time to go through that. I want you to contact the church and we'll get you set up with somebody who will take you through that. Um, we can do that over Zoom. Had a few gals sign up for that last week, and then a couple of guys uh, this week as well. So just wanted to remind you of that. If you haven't been through the book, we'd love to get you linked up with a guy or a gal to take you through that, and would really encourage you to do so if you haven't already. Well, again, we're continuing our series in First Peter, and it's been a weird couple of weeks culturally in our city. Um, as you know, the beaches were shut down. The beaches opened a few days or a week later. Uh, Governor Newsom uh, handed down, I guess, an executive order um, closing Orange County beaches. I, I walked the kids down there this morning early. I still saw people out there surfing, a few people walking the trail. So um, I think we're going to start to see some things like that coming up in our city, state, and probably nation. So uh, I just want to exhort you to um, be prayerful about how we respond to, you know, new laws or executive orders. And as we see, whether they be peaceful or otherwise, hopefully peaceful demonstrations of protest or just civil disobedience, I think we're going to start to see a little bit more of that. And I just, again, just want to encourage you to, 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 to be prayerful about that and how you respond to that, how you talk about that. How you talk to others about that, publicly and privately, um, as Christians, and we're going to see this actually next week. It's really timely for us in our series in First Peter. We're going to see this next week. What does it look like for us to submit to authorities, even if we may not agree? And maybe some of you do, but even if we may not agree, right, with some of the laws and edicts and what is happening, you know, back in Peter's day and then in our day today. And Peter deals with that a good amount, so it's timely for us in God's providence. We're going to be coming up on some content here in the next week or so that's going to help us maybe work through and think through some of these issues, but just want to encourage you to be prayerful uh, in terms of how you respond to some of the things going on right now. And uh, we'll address these things, as I said, more in the days and weeks to come, but just wanted to exhort you to that. First Peter chapter 2, I'm going to read the text for us. In full, starting in verse 4, 1 Peter 2, verse 4, Peter says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him 
will not be put to shame. So the honor, Peter says, is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, Christians, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As we jump into our text today, I just want to say up front, we're going to be thinking about and trying to unpack here the presence of God. All right, Peter here is giving us a vision of the presence of God and the presence of God specifically in Jesus. And he goes back to the Old Testament quite a bit in this passage to draw out some parallels for us. But I want us to consider mainly the presence of God. All right? And I want to ask, what is the presence of God? When you consider the presence of God, what do you think of? What does that mean to you? I mean, what, what comes to mind? I, I, I do think, as with a lot of issues, I think there's a lot of maybe confusion on what the presence of God actually is. I think for Christians, for many Christians, when we think of the presence of God, we can go a lot of different directions. Sometimes we think of an emotional state or worshiping, and we just say, I felt God's presence. Sometimes we maybe are prone to seeing um, you know, signs or wonders or things like that. Something matches up in, in, in life. We had all the green lights on the way to work, and we just think, oh, God's presence was just with me. I was on my way to work, and he just kind of made that work out. Or any number of other examples. Um, I think we can go directions like that sometimes as Christians. Sometimes we think in a way where we, we almost feel that we have to do some sort of activity or some sort of thing to kind of summon God's presence. We have to be still or we have to enter into some kind of prayer ritual or we have to give ourselves up and worship in a particular way in order for God to be present. Sometimes we think like that. Well, what I want to do from the outset here is I want to go back to the Old Testament and I'm going to we're going to go over a lot of scripture today, heads up. Um, it's all in your bulletin, so you can just reference the verses back there. You don't have to try to flip to all these. But we're going to start by going to the Old Testament. And I want to give you kind of a flyover view, 30,000-foot flyover of the Old Testament and look at some of the major examples, manifestations of the presence of God that we can get an idea what we're talking about when we talk about the presence of God. And then I want to connect that to what Peter's saying and to our lives today. The first thing that we need to consider, the first place we need to go when we consider the presence of God is creation. Genesis chapter 1. God, as he's creating the heavens and the earth and man and everything else, God is actually intimately involved. He's present in his creation. He's actually at work weaving and knitting and fashioning. He doesn't, as he could have, just snap his fingers and everything comes into existence. He's actually present as he's creating, and he does so carefully and thoughtfully, as we'll see. Genesis 1, verse 2, the second verse of the Bible, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, that God's presence was actually there, right? God's creating the earth, and he's, he's there. He's, he's involved. He's intimately involved. Genesis 2, 7 
The Lord God then formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Not only is God involved in creating the material, but he also creates man and woman, and he's involved in their creation, so involved that he breathes life into man. That's God's presence. Right? Our life ultimately comes from God and in such a way that God actually breathes life into us. Again, some have this view that God kind of just creates the universe. So they believe in God as creator, but he kind of just wound it up and left. And he created a bunch of platitudes and principles that the universe kind of runs by and, and is kind of governed on its own natural kind of scale and by its own natural laws, but God's not really involved. And the Bible has a different picture of God's involvement in his creation. He's, he's extremely involved. He's intimately involved. He not only created everything, but he sustains everything. And the man and the woman, they're created by God's direct hand. He breathes his breath of life into their lungs. All right, that's Genesis 1 and 2. And as we continue to read in Genesis, the man and the woman, they're in right relationship with God, right? That God walks metaphorically with the man and the woman in the cool of the day in the garden. They're communing with God. They love God. He loves them. They're his people. He's created them in right relationship with himself. As a result, they exist in right relationship with each other. God tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And they're naked together and not ashamed. There's no sin that's kind of defiling their consciences. They're, they're with each other, fully exposed, yet with no flaws or imperfections. And they're in right relationship with each other because they're in right relationship with God. Genesis 3, as we know, sin does enter the world. The serpent shows up. He deceives the man and the woman. And they sin. They do what God told them not to do. I'll go over this with my son Haddon in our catechism. And we say, did God create man unable to please him? That's one of the questions. And he says, no, not since the fall. And so what happened at the fall? He says, Adam and Eve sinned. And I said, how do they sin? He says, they ate the juicy fruit from the tree that God told them not to eat. And that's true. I, he added the juicy fruit part, but he's right on. He, they, they took the fruit off the tree. They ate what God told them not to eat. They thereby sinned against God. The fruit wasn't really the big deal. We shouldn't look at that and say, oh, God really cares that much about an apple. It's not really about the apple. It's about who's being sinned against. Who said, don't do this? God did. He's the creator of the universe. He's their father. He's their creator. He's their Lord. They sinned against him. It's who is being sinned against is the issue. They sinned against God. As a result, the man and the woman are now disconnected from God. Here's, here's why I'm bringing this up. They can no longer be in God's presence Something is flawed now. Something is wrong. There's issues. There's problems. There's separation. There's division. Genesis 3.8, they eat this fruit. The Bible says their eyes are open. They realize they're naked. They're now ashamed. Sin has now entered their lives. Genesis 3.8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This would have normally not been an issue, but in this case, now that there's sin involved, it is an issue. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Instead of running to commune with God, to be with God, they hide themselves from God. Why? Because he's holy. They are no longer holy. And just at the very sound of his presence, they flee and hide. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord. They can't even be in his presence. And they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. 
right? The man and the woman are now disconnected from God. Ultimately, Genesis 3.24, the man and the woman are cast out of the garden. God says, well, Genesis 3.24 says that he, God, drove out the man in the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man can no longer enter back into the garden because man can no longer enter back into the presence of God. Okay, th- th- that's, how, that's how we get started off as a human race. Ever since then, we've been then disconnected from the presence of God. We've been in turmoil in, in our relationships with each other. Every marriage since then has had problems and issues because of sin. Every relationship to some degree has had problems and issues because of sin. However, we know that God is gracious, He's merciful, He's good, He's patient, and He pursues man. This is really what the whole story of the Bible is, and this is what the whole story of the Old Testament is. As we read from Genesis to Malachi, what we see unfolding in this long story is the history, the recorded history of God pursuing His people. And he's pursuing them to bring them back into his presence. He's pursuing them to bring them back into right relationship with himself. And that's what God seeks to do. So he creates for himself a people out of the world to display his glory to. God wants to bring people back into his presence. That's where people thrive. That's where people are in right relationship, doing what they're created to do. That's where God wants to bring us. And so he creates a people to display his glory to. Right? And fast forward to Exodus, we see that God has created a people. They're in slavery in Egypt. Following the theme of God's presence then, God's presence descends upon his people. He leads them out of Egypt, Exodus says, with a strong hand and by his presence. By his presence. That God's presence in the wilderness came in the daytime in the form of a cloud. God's people followed his presence in the form of the cloud. And at nighttime, his presence was manifest in the form of fire. And God's presence led his people in the form of fire. Okay? That's God's presence being manifest to his people. A little bit later on, God calls his people to create what's called the tabernacle. And God said, build this portable tabernacle and what it's going to be is it's going to be a place where I'm going to come. My presence is going to dwell in a special and unique way. And I'm going to meet with you in this tabernacle. Exodus says this cloud that is representing God's presence would come and rest over the door of the tabernacle. And God's presence would literally dwell there so he could manifest himself to his people and his people could come and meet with him at the tabernacle. A little bit later on, God calls a man named Solomon, king of Israel, to build a permanent temple where God's presence would dwell. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1, Solomon builds this temple. He spares no expense. I mean, it's the nicest, finest, choicest materials that he builds this temple with. And he's there in front of the temple and he's praying over it. He's dedicating it. He's asking God's presence to come and dwell in it as he promised. Right? He's dedicating the temple, and then this is what Second Chronicles 7, verse 1 says. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That's God's presence. The life of God's people, then, centered around this temple from here on out. This is where the priests would go and make sacrifices on behalf of the people. This is where the people would come and pray. This is where they'd come and sing. This is where they'd gather together. This was really the centerpiece of the life of God's people. But 
Though God sought, though He pursued, though He displayed, though He condescended and came to dwell among His people in a temple so He could display His glory to them, though He did all of that, His people continued to sin, continued to rebel, continued to harden their hearts, continued to practice idolatry. And so God withdrew His presence. Ezekiel 10 talks about that. God withdrew His presence. But God, as we know, we know the end of the story, God wasn't done with His people. See, God, this is the story of the Bible. We sin, God pursues. We sin, God pursues. We sin, God pursues. And God continues to pursue. He is good. He is gracious. He is patient. And it just goes to show, church, that salvation, our relationship with God is not dependent on our faithfulness, but on His faithfulness. That is so good to know. We see that all throughout Scripture. We look at people in the Old Testament, people who make mistakes, and we say, what knuckleheads? How could you make such bad mistakes? And the reality is, is that we're the exact same way. That we sin against God, we harden our hearts, we practice idolatry, and God pursues us. Right? Our salvation is not dependent on our faithfulness, but God's. So God continues to pursue God has made a covenant with himself in eternity past that he will seek and save sinners and nothing will thwart that covenant. So he promises that his presence will return and that he will display his presence again to his people. Haggai 2.9, God promises this, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory shall be greater than the former. In other words, after God's glory departed from Solomon's temple, God says he'll fill it again. He'll fill his house with glory and it'll be even greater than the first. Malachi 3.1 says this, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. The presence of God will be in the temple again. That's what God promises. And so God's faithful, his faithful people, they waited They knew those promises. They waited for those promises. They anticipated those promises. But the fulfillment of those promises that God would manifest his presence in the temple again, they would not come in the way anybody expected. They would not come in the form of clouds or in the form of fire or in the form of Shekinah glory descending on the temple, but they would come in the form of a person. They'd come in the form of a person. Okay? Okay. Here's the first point for us today. After a long introduction with a lot of background, here's the first point for us today. We only have two. We only have two. Here's the first one. The presence of God and the person of God. Everyone was expecting God's glory to fill the temple like it had before. And the faithful to God waited for that, but it didn't come. The glory did not come like they expected. Instead of coming in clouds or fire or Shekinah glory, it came in a person. It came in Jesus. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to Him, that's Jesus. As Christians come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. This is what God says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. In Jesus, church, 
The presence of God is no longer displayed in an inanimate building, but in a living, breathing person. The presence of God is no longer cut off from man, but actually enters into humanity as a man. No longer do we just get mere glimpses of the presence of God, but we get to witness in Christ God's presence in its fullness. Colossians 1.19 says this, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God's presence was fully manifest and displayed in Jesus. John 1.14 says this, The Word became flesh, the eternal Word, John says, the Creator Word, God, the Word, became flesh. And He dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the literal word there for dwelt is tabernacled. The Word of God came and tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent among us. That harkens back to the tabernacle in Exodus where God's presence was manifest. He would meet with his people. That is fulfilled in Jesus. The word becomes flesh. He becomes a man and tabernacles among us. God's presence is now among his people. See, all through history, God has been pursuing sinners to bring sinners back into his presence. And his presence leads his people out of slavery. His presence travels with his people in the wilderness. His presence is on display for his people in the temple. And all of this pointed forward to the ultimate display of his presence. God himself becomes a man. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God is fully revealed. We want to know what God's like? We look at Jesus. In Jesus, God comes to earth and reveals himself to us. God lives a perfect and righteous life. God goes to the cross and dies the death in our place for our transgressions. See, the temple in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Jesus is the true and greater temple. In John chapter 2 and elsewhere, Jesus says, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. He's referring to himself, the greater temple, the true temple, where God's presence actually dwells, where God's presence will be made manifest to his people. Tear it down and I'll build it again in three days. He's referring to his death and his resurrection. Jesus himself is the true temple and greater temple. He's the living stone. Right? At the ground floor of any temple, there'd be a cornerstone. It was the foundation stone of the whole temple. Jesus is the cornerstone, but he's a living stone. He's the living stone, Peter says. The priests in the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. He is the true and greater high priest. Jesus is the true and greater mediator. The, the priest's role in the Old Testament was to stand between God and man and minister to God on behalf of the people. And he'd make sacrifices on behalf of the people. He'd offer up prayers on behalf of the people. He'd minister to God on behalf of the people. Jesus comes as the true and great high priest. Those priests had to offer sacrifices day after day. Jesus comes as the true high priest and offers one sacrifice. He's the true and greater sacrifice as well. He's the greater temple, he's the greater high priest, and he's the greater sacrifice. We no longer have to offer sacrifices today. Do you know why? Because Jesus himself is the greater sacrifice once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And here's what Peter says. He who receives this gospel will be honored, will be saved, will not be put to shame. He says that in verse seven. The honor is for you who believe. The honor is for you who believe. But he who rejects the gospel, he who rejects the cornerstone will be crushed by the cornerstone. The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he continues this quote, the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. He who rejects the stone will stumble over the stone and be crushed by the stone. He who opposes the gospel, he who, maybe you'd say, I don't oppose the gospel, but I just don't believe it. Well, that's opposition to the gospel. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. See, there's only two ways to live. There's only two choices to make. We either choose Jesus and life in the gospel Every other choice aside from that all leads to the same road. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite pastors, preachers, theologians, he says this, lengthy quote, but I think it'll be worth our time. He says this, he who would place himself in front of a fast-moving train car will be crushed and would be just as foolish as you who are opposing the gospel. If the gospel is true, remember that truth is mighty and must prevail. And who are you to attempt to stand against it? You will be crushed. But let me tell you, when that train car runs over you, the wheel will not be raised even an inch by your size. For what are you? What am I? A tiny man, a creeping worm, which that wheel the wheel of the train car will crush to less than nothing and not leave you even a name as having ever been an opponent of the gospel or even born on earth. Let all the infidels in the world know surely that the gospel will win its way, whatever they may do. Poor creatures, their efforts to oppose the gospel are hardly even worthy of our notice And we need to not fear that they can stop the truth. Listen, they're like a gnat. Those who oppose the gospel, they're like a gnat who thinks he can quench the sun. Go, tiny insect, and do it if you can. You will only burn your wings and die. Likewise, there may be a fly who thinks that he can drink the ocean dry. Drink the ocean if you can, old fly. More likely, you will sink in it, and it will drink you. Friends, there is... No victory in opposition to the gospel. And let me say this, who God is and what the gospel is and what we need to do to be made right with God, to be in God's presence, is not up for our own personal opinion. We cannot shape and mold that and make up whatever type of God we want and then bring that God into our life and say, here's the God I've made and he must be okay with everything that I do. If he's not, then that's not the God that I worship. Okay, that's not the true God. That's just a God of our own imagination and conjuring. I was talking to a guy the other day, loved this dude, did not think he even considered himself a Christian, but I found out the other day that he did. A friend of mine, he said, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I asked him, I said, so do you consider yourself a Christian? He was saying some things that indicated that. And he said, yeah, I, I've always been a Christian. And I said, oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that. Good to know. And he said, I know you're a church guy. I said, I am a church guy. And he said, I know you're a church guy, but I'm not a church guy, but I'm still a Christian and I love Jesus. I just, I kind of connect with him in my own way. And I don't really listen to preaching or read a lot of the Bible. I just, I kind of learn about God through my own way. And God, I think, you know, manifests himself in different ways to different people. Man, I love this guy and I'm glad we had this conversation. It'll help me engage him now in the future. But here's the deal. We can't make up a God for ourselves and say, well, this is the God of the Bible. I know it's not very biblical, but look, I love that Jesus died and forgives my sins. And so I want to keep that. But everything else, I'm just going to mold to my own liking. It doesn't work that way. If the gospel is true, it changes everything. If the gospel is true, we must obey it. If the gospel is true, we can't take what we like, reject what we don't like, and say, I'm good with God. It doesn't work that way. To do so is to stumble over the cornerstone and ultimately be crushed. Alternatively, the presence of God, Peter says, has come to man in the living stone. And the living stone, Jesus offers himself to everybody who would receive and everybody who would build their lives on him. The true and greater temple, the true and greater priest, the true and greater sacrifice, the true cornerstone of our faith is Jesus Christ, the living stone. The presence of God in the person of God, the presence of God is manifest ultimately in the person of Jesus. But Peter goes further. The presence of God has come to man in Jesus, but Peter goes further. Not only do we get to, as God's people, be near the presence of God, but for those who come to the living stone in faith, his presence actually enters into us. Number two, the presence of God in the people of God. The presence of God in the people of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were a people, not once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus Christ, Peter says, is the living stone, and in him you and I are living stones. In Jesus, you and I are living stones. Peter says this, you're being built up into a spiritual house. Okay, in the Old Testament, God dwelt with his people in his house, in his temple. That is how he dwelt among his people. And now through Jesus Christ, God dwells in us. We are his temple. We are God's temple. We are the new temple of God under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. This is good news, church. God's presence is no longer distant. God's presence is no longer limited to one space. His special presence, His manifest glory is no longer limited to the temple. 
but it actually is in us. God, the Holy Spirit, makes us His home. He takes up residence in the lives of His people. I must remind you, we talked about this last week, but in this whole section of Peter, he is not dealing with the Christian as an individual, but he's dealing with Christians as the corporate body. Okay? This is really important for us to get. We're quick to think of ourselves as individuals before God, and that's good. We are individuals before God. But what Peter is pointing out here, what the Bible is often quick to do, is point us to and talk of Christians collectively before God as his people. Peter says, there's not just a couple of living stones, but Christians together are living stones, and together the church is being built up into a spiritual house. A quote for, for you that I love, or a little story for you. A Spartan king, Sparta was an old Grecian city-state, and a Spartan king, they were known for war and all that, and a Spartan king one time was boasting to a visiting monarch about the walls of Sparta. Look at our walls and how beautiful our walls are and how strong and powerful our walls are. And the visiting king looked around and he could see no walled city. He was in Sparta. He didn't see any walls. So he says to the king of Sparta, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? The Spartan king pointed to his army and replied, there are the walls of Sparta, every man a brick. For Christians, it's a little bit like that. Our spiritual house, the spiritual temple that we constitute is a little bit like that. We make up God's temple, every man a brick, every woman a brick. Every person has a unique role and calling, but we all fit and work together as God's church. I've told you this before, and I'll say it again. Our faith is personal, but it's never private. Our faith is personal, but it's never private. Your faith is personal, but it's never private. Our faith is always intended to be worked out in community, in the context of the local church. What Peter's saying here is that living stones together as the church form the house of God, a spiritual house and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, being built together, continually being shaped and formed and conformed into the image of Christ. Peter gives us a few examples, a few truths of, of what this looks like, of who we are as God's spiritual house, his spiritual temple. I want to finish our time this morning by just going over a couple of these. Verse 9, Peter starts, he says, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. God's people are a chosen race. In the Old Testament, God chose to work through, to display himself to the world through an ethnic people group, a geopolitical nation. Israel. And to enter into God's people, you'd have to enter into Israel. Now, ultimately, it was always by faith, but the outward manifestation was physical. You had to get circumcised if you were male, and you actually had to enter into the people group of Israel to become one of God's covenant people. Now, Peter says, this chosen race are not just those who are of the descendants of Abraham, but those who come to the living stone Jesus and believe in him. Those are the chosen race. We are the chosen race. Christians are the chosen race. It's a spiritual race, not a physical one. 
It's a spiritual race, not a physical race. Our commonality is in Christ. This is why, friends, we don't have to be of the same race to have fellowship. We don't have to have all these kinds of different, com- the same commonalities, rather, to have fellowship. But we can be extremely diverse and have the utmost of fellowship because our commonality is in Christ. In our church, there are folks of all kinds of different backgrounds, careers, tastes, hobbies, upbringings, ages, and we all have commonality in Christ. We're a chosen race as Christians. Number two, we're a royal priesthood, Peter says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. The Old Testament priest, as we said, had access to God. They stood between God and man in some sense. At least they represented that. They pointed forward to Jesus. But nonetheless, their role, the Levites, they're the ones that went to the temple. They're the ones that made sacrifices. They had access to God. They also ministered to God on behalf of the people. That was the role of the Old Testament priests. Peter now says, however, that in Christ, there's not only one class of people, one clan, one tribe that has access to God, but all Christians have access to God. That's what he means when he says, you're royal priests. We no longer need a human mediator. We no longer need a man or a woman for that matter, or anybody on earth to stand between us and God. Through Jesus, our great high priest, we have direct access to God. In Christ, we have direct access to God. Number two, in Christ, we are called to pour our lives out ministering to others. That's what the priests did. They would minister to God on behalf of others. And so we are called as priests to pour our lives out on behalf of others to minister to them, to bring people to God. Verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, you're being built up as a spiritual house, holy priesthood, again, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Okay, this includes our own worship before God personally, but it also includes our ministry to and for others on behalf of them to God, bringing people to God, pointing them to God. Not in the same exact way a priest did, because those who come to Jesus, they don't need a priest either. The point is, they can go directly to God if they go through Jesus. The point is is that we minister like priests did. We love like priests did. We pursue the good of people like the priests did. In the Reformation, Martin Luther called this doctrine from 1 Peter chapter 2 here, the priesthood of all believers the priesthood of all believers, that it's not just the Levites who are part of the priesthood anymore, but all Christians, all Christians. We no longer need to go to someone who we call father. We no longer need to go through a dead saint. We never had to. We we no longer need to go through any sort of human mediator, but we go directly to Jesus. He is our great mediator. Little question for you. How will you minister to others this week? Think about it this way. How will you fulfill your priestly duties this week? How will you fulfill your priestly role this week? Taking advantage of your access to God, coming before God with boldness and confidence and love, but also ministering to others. How will you function in your priestly duties this week? Number three, Peter says, a holy nation. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Holy being set apart, distinct from the world. Christians are a people who are in the world, but not of the world. Peter says at the beginning of his epistle, you're elect exiles, you're of God, you're part of his kingdom and his citizens, 
but you're exiles from the world in some sense. Listen here, priests, as a royal priesthood, we're involved in the world, we're involved in the lives of people, but as a holy nation, as a set-apart nation, we are distinct from the world. Christians, we talked about this last week, I think, uh, or the week before, as ambassadors, ambassadors. Ambassadors are involved in one nation, they're involved in the affairs and the lives of people, but they have a mission and a citizenship in a different place. Same idea here. We're priests that were involved in the world. Jesus calls us to be involved in the world. As he was involved in the world, so we are involved in the world. But ultimately our citizenship is in another place. And even as we're involved in the world, we must be set apart and distinct from the world. We remain in the culture. We love, seek, minister to people, but we operate differently in the culture. There's a lot of ways. It's interesting to look at the early church and the people that Peter was writing to in the next few decades and centuries and, and the ways that they were set apart. And I think there's some things for us to learn from this. There's a lot of ways they were set apart. I wrote down a few. They didn't attend bloodthirsty entertainment. Ultimately, they boycotted things like gladiatorial fights and the like, entertainment that was just gruesome, gratuitous, and cruel. Just because it's fun doesn't mean we need to get involved. Just because it's entertaining doesn't mean that it's okay. Christians back then, they boycotted that stuff. They didn't go to the bloodthirsty entertainment. Number two, they, they did not support abortion or infanticide, which was common in that day. Not only did they not support abortion or infanticide, but they would actually adopt children from what I know, that's how orphanages got started in, in Rome. Christians would pick up children on the side of the road, and that's how orphanages were started. They would love them, care for them. They didn't support abortion or infanticide. You know, it's so interesting to me that right now in our culture, we have this disease that's floating around. People have been real scared about it. We've taken some really extreme measures to prevent the spread of it. But it's just so interesting that, that suddenly everybody's pro-life. And that people, all people, many people, regardless of political affiliation or whatever else, ideological affiliation, are willing to go to extreme measures to prevent loss of life. The original projections, a couple hundred thousand people. I think they, they were saying at the beginning of, of this coronavirus pandemic that the absolute worst things could get would be a million or two million Americans. Really, it was more like 250,000 or right in that ballpark for projections. I think to date, 60, 65 in that ballpark, thousand Americans have died. Uh, That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. We don't want to take that lightly. But I just want to say this. The leading cause of death in America by far is abortion. The leading cause of death by far, a million children a year. People have always been doing this. Satan has always had influence in the world in this way. And it's good to take precautions so folks don't get sick from the coronavirus. While at the same time though, a million kids are still going to die. Make no mistake, friends. That is a 
mixed up priority. And Christians today, as Christians back then, man, we need to deal with this in a way that's significant and substantial that actually stands up for kids and that actually has a voice for kids and that actually takes action in ways that are right and appropriate and by God's grace and will effective. Christians have always been pro-life. Christians have always been against infanticide. Christians have always been against abortion. And Christians nowadays, more than ever, and we must remember our roots, Christians have always been set apart a holy nation. One thing that means is we're against abortion, not only positionally against it. Yes, I'm, I'm pro-life. I'm against abortion. That's my position. But practically, we need to live that out. Christians always have. Christians always have. And Christians must do so today. Christians in the first century empowered women. That made them different. The Bible elevates women. Don't let anyone ever tell you the Bible is a sexist book that suppresses women. It's not. It elevates women. The only two people groups that are told to, that are said, that ministered to Jesus during his earthly ministry are angels and women. Women were highly elevated by the Christian community. Number four, the biblical sexual ethic was completely, in the first century, completely contrary to the world. Number five, Christians were generous to the poor, radically generous to the poor. Christians, number six, had mixed races and classes. That was completely contrary to the culture. Okay? All this to say Christians were a holy nation. Why? They were God's own possession. Peter says they were God's own possession. We are God's own possession. And as God's possession, he says this, a people for God's own possession, that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. I just want to finish with that, church. We've been made a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, God's own possession, that we may declare these things. We're not called into God's family to be passive. We're called to be active. We're not called to just be consumers. We're called to be participants. We're called to be participants. What we've received, we must display. Because you know what? There's a lot of people who are going to be crushed by the cornerstone. We're going to be crushed because they reject Jesus. They reject the gospel. They reject truth. They make up a God for themselves. They don't care much about God or whatever it is. But they're going to be crushed. They need the gospel. They need love. They need to be ministered to. They need to be cared for. They need to be pursued. And as God in Christ has pursued us... May we, as God's people, a holy priesthood, a temple being built up in holiness, may we, as God did to us, pursue sinners with God's word and God's grace. Father God, you truly have done amazing, insurmountable, unimaginable things in the lives of your people. You have transformed us in ways that we are just beginning to understand that we will be learning about for eternity. You've called us out of the world and made us a people for yourself, a people to display your glory to, but also a people that you might display your glory through. I pray, God, that we, as Union Church, would be used as vessels where your glory shines through us brightly. In your good name, amen.